Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. There was a time early on in the web era when things were very much wide open. It was the Wild West. An entrepreneur could survey the scene and say, you know, no one has done a great sports site yet, so why don't I build one? The person we're going to talk to today, Mike Levy, did just that, taking on deep-pocketed incumbents like ESPN to eventually build Sportsline, which would later be known as CBS Sportsline, into a lasting and powerful brand. Mike recounts for us Sportsline's initial incarnation as a dial-up service, its partnerships early on with major sports celebrities, as well as being present for the foundation of the modern fantasy sports industry. Please enjoy this conversation with Mike Levy. Mike Levy, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. I'm happy to be here. This should be fun. Mike, are you uh, are you a native Floridian? Uh, yes, I uh, actually grew up in Miami and went to Miami High and uh, was a big University of Miami uh, football fan growing up and uh, stayed there all, my whole uh, life up until recently. I went to school at Georgia Tech, though. Right, right. You got your um, uh, a degree in electrical engineering at Georgia Tech. Yes. Um. So let's let's talk a little bit about um, your early career. Um, when when you leave school with this uh, electrical engineering degree, um, you you do work for several different corporations uh, down in Florida, um, doing you know engineering design and, and, and management positions. I think, um, and you have you have a lot of uh, patents for various things from that time period. Correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. What were what base what generally uh, were the engineering uh, things that you were working on? Well, I think what's uh, what's pretty interesting about that time uh, when I graduated from Georgia Tech, it was in uh, June of 1969, and that was a a very hot time for uh, technology uh, hiring. I must have had during during the spring of that year, I probably took 20 road trips to meet with people like Texas Instruments and Eastman Kodak and Western Electric. Uh, a ton of companies were all offering jobs. And if you recall, 1969 was also a period where uh, uh, it was very easy to get drafted to uh, in the Army to go to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I concentrated my efforts uh, in getting my, my first job out of school as a, with a military contractor to be sure that I could get a critical skills deferment. So that wiped out about half of the uh, job offers that I had. So I ended up going to work for a high-tech company in Melbourne, Florida called uh, Harris Corporation. And there we worked on um, on uh, supervisory control, first aerospace stuff. And then, you know, later that year, 1969, the uh, NASA cut back, the military electronics area cut back. There were a lot of layoffs. So a lot of people that graduated with me got laid off. But uh, I transferred into the controls division there, and I worked on supervisory control systems for electric utilities and oil pipelines. It was a great experience. And that was the Harris Corporation? Yes. And you also worked at uh, Rackle Datacom? 
Yeah, what happened is I developed a, um, a supervisory control substation in uh, 1972 that I designed around the Intel 8008 processor, which was the first 8-bit microcomputer chip. And I designed it and wrote a compiler for it even before the chips became available. And probably the product I developed was probably one of the first products in the history of the world using a microprocessor chip. So what happened was this company in Miami wanted to develop a series of intelligent terminal products. And they talked to Intel about who could, who could they find that really had microcomputer experience, and Intel uh, referred me. So I, that's how I ended up going to uh, Ray Caldatacom. And there designed a number of, uh, of high-speed data communications products. I call them high-speed. They're pretty slow-speed compared to now, but for the time, they were uh, pretty sophisticated. So that was another good level of experience. My, my expertise was always in digital design. So then tell me about um, the company you found uh, or founded, was, which was called Lexicon Corporation. What, yeah, what happened with that was a, a, a guy contacted me out of the blue one day, and he had gotten my name from uh, Intel as well. And this was while I was still working at, at Raycal. And he had an idea to do a handheld language translator. And, you know, I looked at what he was trying to do. It was impossible. You, they, we didn't, at that point, have very small alphanumeric displays. We didn't have microprocessor chips that were small enough, powerful enough. We didn't have memory chips that were very good. I mean, it was not, we didn't have the sophisticated type of electronics to make that happen. But I stayed in touch with this guy. I developed a prototype that fit in a shoebox size design and told him, look, as soon as some of these technologies become available, we can shoot for it. So by 1978, we were able to find a single-chip microprocessor, a 64K ROM. I found a calculator company in, uh, you know, over in Malaysia that would agree to build this thing for us. And we went out, <laughs> the two of us, we both had jobs, but we went out and uh, somehow just raised $500,000 at a public offering by doing what they call a Regulation A offer. Mm -hmm. So we, we went up to New York, met with all these small brokerage guys, and we raised this half a million dollars. And that's what got us started, and we ended up uh, launching the product by the end of the year. We sold it to Neiman Marcus, Saks, Bloomingdale's, Macy's. And, uh, you know, it was a big hit for a while. We uh, Our stock went from 1 to 15 in about six months. What what was the name of the product itself, the actual translating product? It was called the LK3000. i got to look and that up. Actually, there's an article that somebody wrote about the history of portable computing devices and P PDAs and all that, and he actually acknowledged that I probably developed the first PDA in, uh, in history. Yeah, I, I, I need to do more research on that and, and find some photos at the very least. Um, so And, and I, have pat I had patents on it. We ended up selling the product line because we were un undercapitalized, we, and it was more of a fad product, but we sold the product line to, um, to a company called Nixdorf Computer, and the patents were sold to, I believe it was Panasonic. And the, but what we did with that handheld terminal is we actually, the, the, the product itself was basically a keyboard and a display. And the microprocessor and memory were in a plug-in module. So we could actually plug something else into that slot and run it. And we did that to create um, a modem that could hook to it so we could use it as a data communications terminal. And we got approached one day 
by some guys from the Department of Defense who contracted with us to develop a, an encryption terminal out of it. Hmm. So we had some pretty interesting times with that. I was at, we did a number of different projects at Lexicon. We did some of the earliest uh, credit card authorization terminals and, you know, a number of other things. But I was there for 15 years as CEO and finally uh, uh, left the company, sold out of it in uh, 1993. Right. So, and that will that will pick up uh, where our story begins here in a way. So, when when you leave um, uh, Lexicon, you sort of you, you don't know what what your next move is going to be. And I believe the story is is that you you contact headhunters, you send your resume out, and and for whatever reason, um, you're you're not quite uh, finding another job with another company. Right. I found out I was unemployable. <laughs> So is that what leads you to start thinking about uh, doing a, a, another entrepreneurial venture? Uh, yeah, basically. I I was uh, striking out. I, I had offers, but nothing I was really interested in. So, uh, you know, I started thinking about uh, some other things I could be doing, and it just happened that during that period in uh, late 1993 that America Online had gone public that year, and they were getting a lot of publicity, and and I used Prodigy back then to get uh, stock quotes and things like that. So I said, you know what, this is pretty interesting. AOL's got a, about a million users now, and Prodigy's got over a million, and CompuServe has over a million. I started thinking about that eventually everybody's going to be online, the way these, these companies are growing. Mm-hmm. I never heard of the Internet, but I thought – that uh, these online services had something going for them, and I thought it could be that everybody would be using them. So I started thinking about the sports vertical and trying to put something together strictly for sports with more of a, um emphasis on sports gambling than anything else. Well, so, I, I had read, and maybe this is this is legend, but that it, it was like um... – it, uh, the the January first, and so the bowl games are yeah. going on. And, and you, okay, go ahead, tell the story. Yeah, that's right. Uh, January. Uh, what I decided to do is I enrolled in all of these services: Prodigy, America Online, CompuServe. And I said I've got to do a test here. Now, what's coming up? The bowl games are coming up, and I'm going to be watching the bowl games. I'm going to be on these services, and I want to see how they're covering them. So I'm I watch some of these bowl games, and I'm online while I'm doing it. And notice that nobody's updating anything. Everybody still had pre-game stuff up. They weren't putting up scores. They weren't doing doing anything really. And when the games were over, uh, it took until the next day before there would be any story about who what even happened during the game. So I said, look, this is wide open. Sports fans want to know this stuff, and I think there's a real opportunity to uh, to work on uh, real-time scoring uh, stats updates uh, of what's going on so so that's when I decided to start the company in early uh, 1994 now i know that you have this um electrical engineering background but uh, and a background in computers obviously but you had no previous experience with online services or or, or anything like that i had no experience with anything that i really needed to to know how to do <laughs> <laughs> i'd never heard of the internet i'd never done anything with online services well uh, I, I had never sold an advertisement in my life you at, know i'd never been involved in the media business at, and, at lexicon and i had and i had never raised venture capital before right we'll get to that in, in just one second but I, i'm just curious at lexicon 
wasn't there a, a, a subdivision called Sports Tech International? Yes, there was. That was an interesting. That's kind of what led me to this vertical. Right, right. We 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 developed back in 1986. The NFL switched from using 16 millimeter film to video for recording the game tapes that would be used for study of opponents' tendencies and so on. So they all switched to this very high-priced uh, video equipment. But there were no uh, video editing systems available then that were specifically tailored to what they needed. So we developed a video editing system that would break down the game tapes. And we sold it, first of all, to the Dallas Cowboys, the Green Bay Packers, and the Chicago Bears. And it kind of led to a landslide. We, um, we ended up selling these systems ultimately to 150 college football programs and to 26 of the 32 NFL teams. And it was pretty cool, and I really liked it. We weren't dealing with sports executives. We weren't dealing with athletes. We were dealing with the video guys and the general managers of these teams. So, but we ended up selling about $30 million worth of these systems. And then things started to move into digital, and, uh, you know, we just didn't have recurring income in that area. But that's what got me thinking about doing something in the consumer area for sports. Well, and I can so see that, that, that obviously... That kind of was a lead-in, too. You know, that's kind of how I thought of that vertical in the first place. Right. I can see how that that, that would get you thinking about adding technology to, to a sports vertical and, and, and meshing up the two. So you, you had mentioned, okay, this is early 1994. You decide you want to, you want to do a, a sports online service. And you mentioned the, that you had never uh, raised venture capital before. And you have an absolutely fascinating story about that. So tell me about starting to get uh, sports line off the ground. <laughs> well, uh, to begin with, I, I decided I needed to raise $2 million to get it, get it started. I figured, okay, I can find 20 guys to put $100,000 each in and uh, put together a business plan, the whole thing, and started trying to raise $100,000 for 20 guys. So I probably went to 50 people that I thought that I knew or that could potentially do it. I didn't get a single yes, not one. So a guy's in my office one day, and he says, uh, you know, you need a gorilla here. You need a guy that everybody knows in sports, and I have the guy for you because I know his manager. And it turned out it was Joe Namath. So I called up Joe Namath's agent, and uh, he said, what do you want with Joe Namath? I said, well, we'd like to get him involved in a new venture. He said, well, if you want to use Joe, it's going to uh, cost you half your company. <laughs> I said, well, look, why don't you uh, get real, but let's talk about what actually makes sense. So the guy came down to meet me in Fort Lauderdale, and we went through everything, and he was impressed. He invited Joe in, and Joe liked it. So Joe said, I'm in. If you can raise $2 million, I'm in. So Jimmy Jimmy Walsh was his agent's name. He still is today. And uh, Jimmy said, look, I know a bunch of guys in New York that could be interested in this. So Jimmy and I went up to New York, and we, we had 10 meetings in one day. And the last meeting was with a guy who was in the uh, plastics business. He built all the, he made all the plastic Christmas trees for Walmart and Kmart. His name was Burke Zant. And we went to dinner with him at Lutess, and he, um, he didn't know anything about sports, but he brought a guy with him from IBM that could at least tell him about the technology side of it. 
So we had dinner at Lutev. I'm thinking this is a real waste because this guy doesn't even know anything about sports. The next day, I get a call from Jimmy Walsh, and he says, Burke wants to come in. He says, he does, but he doesn't want to do 100000 He wants to do the whole $2 million. Hmm. I said, oh, well, really? Yeah. He says, he says yeah, we've got to have a meeting with him and his lawyers today. So we go over and we meet with the attorneys. And Burke sits there, and he says, I want to do this deal. Now, bear in mind, this guy had never bought stock in any companies before. He was worth $100 bucks. It was all in CDs. So this was so unusual that he would make this type of an investment. So his lawyers are in the room, and he says to them at the beginning of the meeting, he says, look, he says, I like this guy. I like this, this deal. Joe Namath is involved. I don't want you guys to do any due diligence. I just want to invest the $2 billion. The only thing you have to worry about is if this guy dies, I get my $2 million back. <laughs> So the whole thing, the whole negotiation was over the uh, was over the life insurance policy. Huh. But that's still pretty, that's a sweetheart deal. That uh, no due due diligence, just let this guy do what he needs to do. And not only that, he bought he bought common stock, he uh, with no preferences, and he paid his own legal expenses. And um, I, I I know we're probably getting ahead of the launch here, but um, had you tried? Uh, like the the traditional California VC tech VC. Oh route. yeah, and I had sent letters to every VC on the planet, and most didn't respond, and the ones that did responded no. And eventually, you do. I, this is where we might be getting ahead of the chronology. You you do uh, get investment from Kleiner Perkins. So if they had our, if they had turned you down, how did you get a second look from them? What happened was uh, well, we had the two million now to work with. So I knew I needed a chief technology officer, a guy who actually knew how to do this. And I hired a, re- a recruiting firm, and we ultimately hired a guy that worked for Apple named Tom Eastwood, who was uh, involved heavily in Apple's online service that they had back at that time. And Tom came on board with us. And we also had another guy as a consultant uh, named Tom Ralston, who was a guy who was the architect of AOL's original system. He right, right. retired from AOL. He made a ton of money. So Tom Ralston and Tom Eastwood start looking about how can we do this. Tom ends up, at the time, if you recall, late 1994, Netscape started distributing their browsers. Mm-hmm. You could go online and download a browser. And the Internet was starting to become known. So he said, okay, well, Netscape are the guys here that are they're actually doing, uh, doing something. We ought to talk to them. So Tom Cole called Jim Barksdale, who had just come on board as CEO of Netscape. And we ended up getting a meeting, and we flew out there. We did demos for all the key guys at Netscape. And, uh, and Barksdale liked it. He said, look, you know, I like what you guys are doing. But there's another company that's doing exactly what you're doing. And they have a deal with ESPN. So he told me the whole story of this company called Starwave up in Seattle that was founded by these ex-Microsoft guys. Paul their Allen, software yeah. was being Their software was being done by ex-Sun uh, Microsystems guys, and they had a deal for distribution through ESPN. So I'm, he says, we can't get involved in that deal because they don't need Netscape for anything. They've got these Sun Microsystems guys. They've got Microsoft guys. But we think there's room for a second player. And if you guys would work with us, we'll do all your back-end software to start with. 
and uh, and be your partner in the launch of uh, of Sportsline. And I said, oh, that's really great. You know, it really looked good to us. And you know, Netscape ultimately put engineers down there with us. They helped us. I mean, they were a huge help to us at the beginning. So Barksdale says, you know, you guys need to raise money. I said, yeah. He said, well, let me introduce you to our our venture capitalist, Kleiner Perkins. <laughs> so I, I'd already been turned down by them twice. <laughs> so I get a call from Kevin Compton at Kleiner Perkins, and he sets up a meeting to uh, for me to come in and meet with him. So I go out there to uh, Sand Hill Road, and Kevin Compton's not there. He uh, had got called away on some other kind of a meeting. So the only guys who were around to meet with me were Joe Lacob and Brooke Byers, and they were both in the um, in the biotech side of the business. They they were not in the information sciences part. So I go in and meet with these guys, but the cool thing was that they were both giant sports fans. And as you know today, Joe Lake owns the Golden State Warriors. Right. So I meet with, with these guys. Joe really likes it. And uh, he talks to some of the other guys, Dorn, Vinod, and they they look at it and they say, wow, you know, there's no other nobody else in this but this company, Starwave, and they don't need our money because they have Paul Allen's money. So... You know, I became like the default guy, both at Netscape and at uh, Clyder Perkins in sports. As the sports play. Yeah, so they ended up ultimately investing $3 million. And, you know, they did it as a traditional uh, venture capital investment, and they did it at the same valuation that this other guy, Burke Zamft, had done with the $2 million. So I had to go back to Burke, and I said, look, there's, there's two things. Clyder Perkins is willing to invest in the company. But there's a, you know, there's a good side and a bad side. I said the bad side is they're not willing to pay any more for the stock than you paid. But the good side is you are now on an investing plateau with the top venture capital company around. You're as smart as an investor as they are. So he said, oh, that sounds pretty good. Again, what what a dream investor. <laughs> Well, let's um let's get back to the product then. So launching uh what becomes Sportsline. So like like you said you had originally started out to do an online service. How soon do you realize wait a minute the web is where we need to go? Well, we realized that once Netscape started uh downloading browsers. You know, in late uh 1994 we recognized that. So all of our development efforts were were aimed towards the internet and we had Netscape's help and I hired some very strong software guys and and we started working on it and we uh, we were able to launch by June 1st uh, ESPN had launched too they called their first version Satchel Sports or something like that mm-hmm. before they called it ESPN.com but they launched and we launched um, preliminary services like beta services around June 1st of 95 and the to try to get people uh, to use the service, we were offering every day for 75 days, we offered a signed Joe Namath football. If you log into the service with your email and all of that, and, and you were you were picked, you got a Joe Namath football. So we gave out 75 footballs between June 1st and August 15th, and we picked up 50,000 users, which was pretty good back then. Yeah. So... So our plan, and ESPN's plan too, we both kind of did the same thing. We decided to charge people to to use a service. 
and we were going to charge four ninety five a month or thirty nine ninety five a year for the service. So on August sixteenth, we had a massive press conference in New York at the uh, at the Waldorf Astoria, and we had representatives from all of the leagues: the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, PGA Tour. We had as as our uh, MC for the event, we had Bob Costas. Joe Namath was, was there. Mike Schmidt, Jim Barksdale had just taken uh, Netscape Public, and their stock had gone through the roof, and he flew in from California to be a keynote speaker. So, so it was a really uh, great event, and we started charging for the service at that point. Well, we uh, had all of our users' uh, base of 50,000 disappear on us. Like overnight? <laughs> like overnight. <laughs> the other thing. So, so we came to a quick conclusion that we better offer this free for a while. And uh, so right at the start of the football season, we were getting our, uh, our stats feed from a company called Stats Inc. And we had a product during the baseball season called Baseball Live where we would show an animation of every uh, uh, Major League Baseball game pitch by pitch. And, you know, no baseball never said anything about it, and we ran it. So we planned to do the same thing for the NFL games. Well, the stats got notified by the NFL that they weren't going to permit that. That was their data. We're not going to be able to do it. And they, they told stats, you better pull the feed or we're going to sue you. So stats called us and said, look, we're not going to be able to give you the data to do football live. And the very first week of the football season's coming up. So we got all of our software guys. We, we developed some programs in about three days where the guys would sit in front of their TV, of a TV and a computer and would enter everything in that happened on a play, play-by-play. Play. So we ran uh, football live on the first day of the season. So the next day, this was on a Sunday. On Monday, we got sued by the NFL. But because we were um, partners, we had produced the uh, our first website we produced uh, on the outside was for the NFL Players Association. So the Players Association attorney defended us. So here we are in New York. We got the NFL, their attorneys, our attorney, the attorneys for the NFL Players Association. We hash this whole thing out, and we agree not to do football live for this for the season. But ultimately, we worked out a deal with the NFL. But it was kind of interesting. <laughs> you know, we lost all our subscribers. We uh, got sued by the NFL. We were running out of cash. And you know, with no uh, no ability to raise any more cash at that point, so uh, here we were, I guess, in October, and uh, Kleiner Perkins decided to send a couple of guys down. So they sent down uh, Doug McKenzie and Joe Lake to meet with us. And those guys, you know, they're big 49ers fans, so they picked the time to come down when there was a Monday night football game between the Dolphins and the 49ers. So. We go through the whole meetings during the day, and McKenzie says, look, you got to cut your expenses. You need to just be like a search engine for sports and not be so uh, trying to be everything sports to everybody. So we go through all that, and we go to the football game that night. Well, we're drinking beer. We're watching the game. 49ers are winning. McKenzie's in a good mood, and I convince him that night that we're on the right track and that Kleiner should help let's get to the next stage so they agreed on the the next within a couple of days they agreed to loan us a million and a half dollars 
which saved us because it gave me enough time to uh, to put together the next investment round, which turned out to be $11 million, which we raised in early 96. In late 96, we raised another $16 million. So now we were on really on track. Plus, we were we were building audience up, too. We signed up Shaquille O'Neal and uh, some other sports stars to be spokesmen, and we started to get them publicity. So we're starting to to get on a roll, right? How 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 key was that? Like you signed like Shaquille O'Neal, Michael Jordan, and and what the idea is is that they would interact with fans on on pages on on Sportsline. Yeah, it was a little different at at first. We didn't sign Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods until after we had done our CBS deal in '97. Mm-hmm. In '96, signing Shaquille O'Neal was probably one of the biggest things we ever did because he was in the news all the time. He was playing for Orlando, and he was becoming a free agent, and all the speculation was that he was going to be going to the Lakers. And he actually had uh, an Internet site that was built for him by Microsoft. So we convinced he and his agent that if they took stock in Sportsline, that it would be worth a lot more than they would ever make in their Microsoft deal. So we did a deal for zero cash with, with Shaq, and we would build his website. He would come on for chat sessions and all that sort of thing. So we ended up having a big press conference in New York at the All-Star Cafe in, I don't know, it was about June, I guess, of, uh, of 96. And the, the place was packed. We hadn't, been, we hadn't received coverage on national TV to that point. But because Shaq was in the press conference, CNN picked it up. It was picked up on all the ABC affiliates around the country. We got a lot of press coverage. All the New York papers wrote about it. And it really put us on the map. And right after we did the Shag deal was the Summer Olympics. And we did a great job of, of covering the Olympics uh, and and got just a, you know, a tremendous uh, growth in our user base at that point. So now we were, we were really on a roll by, uh, by let's say, late '96. Oh, I have to tell you another funny investment story. Sure. When we, when we raised the $16 million in about September of 96, I was negotiating with Goldman Sachs Venture Capital Arm to put in $8 million of it, and the other eight would come from our previous investors. So I had these guys come in from U.S. West that wanted to invest, and they're sitting in my office saying, look, we know you've got this deal done, but we'd like whatever we can get. If you could get us a million dollars or two million dollars, whatever it is, we just want into the deal. So I said, well, let me see what I could work out. And while they're sitting in the room, I get a call from the Goldman Sachs guy. And he says, look, we've had our meeting with the investment committee. They're going to do the deal, but they want to do it at a lower valuation. So I said, let me call you back. I have the U.S. West guys right in front of me. I said, look, if you want to replace Goldman Sachs in this deal for $8 million at the current valuation, we'll take your money. They said, let us make some phone calls. Within an hour, we had an offer from U.S. West to put in the $8 million. You, you, you have one of the more charmed <laughs> uh, uh, capital raising stories I've, I've ever heard. Um, so let's let's stop for just a second and and take a look at the landscape um so espn.com had launched uh, a few months before you um there's no sports illustrated's not in the game right because they're under time warner and time warner is doing that weird pathfinder thing and so they're not really competition who's your competition aside from espn 
it, it was mainly ESPN. There were a lot of other things that were trying to get started, but uh, none of them had really gained traction yet. But ESPN was killing us. I mean, they they were promoting their service on TV. We didn't have a TV partner at the time, and uh, it was tough. I mean, we had we had good content as good as theirs, but we just weren't getting the uh, the coverage. Well, that's what... why we knew we. I was That's why say, we knew that we needed a TV partner, right, or some sort of partner. Did what about deals with like AOL or or, or something like that? Well, we did have a lot of. Well, we did a major deal with with AOL a few years later. Right, we tried eventually. to do a deal with them back then, but we never got anywhere. And we tried to do NFL dot com back there back then, but ESPN had it. Hmm. So uh, what ended up happening uh, was we knew we needed a TV partner. We had already talked to Fox. They made us an offer that we turned down because it was so bad. So the day before Thanksgiving in uh, 96, Mark Mariani, our head of uh, sales and I, went up to New York. We met with NBC and we met with CBS on the same day. NBC said, well, we would consider this, but you have to move the operation to New Jersey, which was, forget about it. Mm -hmm. We already had like 50 employees in Florida. So we met with CBS, and we got a real break there because um, IMG was our marketing partner at the time, and Sean McManus, who worked at IMG, was just offered the job to come in as the head of CBS uh, Sports, president of CBS Sports. It's a title he still has today. Now, he didn't actually – he was not actually uh, working for them at the time, but he was due to start within a couple of weeks, and he was there for the meeting. And, Sean, you know, I knew Sean from IMG. So we hit it off great, and we actually got a um, a letter of intent from CBS to be our TV partner in early December of '96. We we <laughs> crunched through a deal of amazing uh, negotiation, and finally completed the deal, a marketing deal with CBS that closed two days before the NCAA basketball tournament in '97. And it was fantastic. We had another press conference in New York with Sean McManus, Peter Lund, who was a president of CBS at the time, and uh, and we uh, we kicked it off. And we started the NCAA basketball tournament. We got our first television promotion, and things just really took off. And I think the year 1997 was was a year that we really accomplished a lot. Right, because we should we should note that um, the, when CBS invests, they take an equity stake. Um, and maybe they give you a little bit of cash, but largely what the deal is is in exchange they're giving you um, basically promotional. You're, you're getting free advertising on on CBS Sports events, right? That's correct, and, and and it's worth it because you have to figure that just about 100% of our audience on the internet would be watching some sports event on CBS at one time or another. So we we had the ability through that deal to reach our entire viewing audience, our potential viewing audience, and it gave us a chance to uh, to really uh, show what we had and compete with ESPN. And then shortly after the CBS deal, that's when we signed up uh, Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods, and and uh, you know we were really on the map at that stage. And um, so that that really jumpstarts the audience and 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 gets you you know um, users in the millions and things like that. Right. And and then we started adding content. We started to 
to add our fantasy sports content and some other areas. Oh, I actually, I really want to talk about that. So very early on, um, you guys identified fantasy as as a um, an important area to to focus on, right? Uh, yes, but you know, at the time, back then in '96, '97, the the fan everybody had fantasy at one time or another. ESPN had it, we had it, Yahoo had it. But the um, the thing is, it was a crude type of fantasy compared to what we have today. So we decided at Sportsline to make it a major part of our business and to try to find, you know, try to take fantasy to the next level. And there were some small companies out there who were working on some very innovative things. And we found a company in New York called Daedalus. And Daedalus had developed a product called Commissioner.com. And it was nothing like it in the marketplace because it's it's basically what fantasy is today. Everybody's fantasy today is based on what Commissioner.com was back then. So they were the first ones to com- to have live scoring, all of the statistical information, the tools to build your team with a concept that a commissioner would be in charge of every league. And when we brought that out, it was revolutionary. And, you know, but we were trying to charge for it and nobody would pay for it. So we um, decided to make it free, which pretty much wiped out everybody in fantasy who was trying to charge for it back then, all the smaller companies. And we made it free for two seasons. We've got millions of people playing fantasy. ESPN tried to get a product like that working. They couldn't get it working. It took them about another three years to do it. Yahoo took another few years to get theirs working. So here we had this market with a sophisticated product. It was being offered free. We had millions of users, and then we decided to start charging for it. But we decided to start charging $150 a league. And when we did that, we we were really pleasantly surprised by the results because people were hooked on our service, and we ended up converting 40% of the people to paid users. Uh, yeah. In fact, even even through today, I mean, we were the only ones that were ever successfully able to charge people for fantasy leagues. Yeah, I, I I mean, ostensibly we're talking about um, you know, starting a a great web company, but I I found it fascinating to learn that you were also really there at the birth of of modern the modern fantasy industry. Yeah, I mean, we were really the pioneers in it, and uh, and it's still a big business for CBSSports.com today. Mm-hmm. So, so, go ahead. So, ninety-seven. Uh, after we did all these things, we had an offer to take the company public later that year, and uh, we signed up Robertson Stevens and Montgomery and Cowan as our underwriters. And we got out on a on the road show in November to uh, to raise money. Our our target range was ten to twelve dollars per share. And right before the um, into the roadshow, the market for NASDAQ and, and Internet stocks kind of crashed. And we were kind of, we're sitting at the airport in Denver in a snowstorm in the back of the limo on the conference call with the underwriters to price the deal. And we ended up having to settle for a price of $8 a share, which was below the range. But we raised $32 million at $8 a share in November of 97. And, you know, so we brought the money in. The stock kind of stayed where it was for a while. Then right after the start of the year in 98, Internet stocks started to become hot. And our stock by the end of January was already up to about 17 or $18. And by February, it had reached 26 
And Roberts and Stevens called me up and said, look, we could do a secondary deal and raise more money with these higher prices. I said, okay, great. So we went on the road again, and we closed the deal in April, and we actually we raised $150 million at $37 a share. It was incredible, four months after raising it at $8. Right, and, and four months after almost not being able to IPO at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, so at, at this point, we're in, by 98, 99, we're into the, to the meat of the, the dot-com mania era. Um, is this sort of when, um, you know, people like the NFL and the PGA Tour and the NCAA start to take you more seriously and you start to get larger partnerships with them? Well, the NFL were they were pretty active right from the beginning. You know, they they had ESPN uh, building their site. I mean, they already had NFL.com up right away with uh, ESPN building it. Uh, but what? Uh, but we started working on the other leagues, and I think our first uh, really big deal was doing the PGA Tour site. And shortly thereafter, uh, we were able to. Um, to get the NFL.com site away from ESPN. So we were producing NFL.com, PGATour.com. We actually produced uh, MajorLeagueBaseball.com for a while. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we were, we were very credible at that point because we had a lot of users, had a lot of money, had CBS as a partner. I mean, things were all on the right track. And... Um... By 2000, I think by even some metrics, you're you're maybe beating ESPN.com in in terms of audience. Yeah, I think so because of the fantasy area and some of the other things we were doing with the NFL and others. So uh, I could tell you though, I think the peak before we had the internet crash in 2000 on the stock market was in 1999. Uh, I was approached by uh, by Michael Jordan's agent. And we were exclusive with Michael Jordan on the Internet. And we, we were doing a little bit of e-commerce, but not too much. And uh, Michael Jordan's agent said to me, he said, look, Michael's been offered an opportunity to invest in a new startup company. And, you know, at that time, it was Internet mania. Anything could go public. Anybody could raise money. So so he wanted to go into a deal called MVP.com that was being backed by Benchmark. And they had raised about $80 million dollars. And they were going to uh, sell sporting goods on the Internet. And it was going to be Michael Jordan, uh, Wayne Gretzky, and uh, John Elway would be part owners of it. So I told uh, Jordan's agent, I said, you can't do it. I mean, we're, you, we have you guys tied up in an exclusive. We plan to go in e-commerce. Can't do it. They said, we have to be able to do it. Michael's going to make a fortune with this deal. I said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to well, consider it at this point. The very same day, I got a call from Fred Reynolds, who's a, who was a CFO of uh, of CBS, and he says, "Look, CBS wants to enter, invest in this company called MVP.com. Mm. We want to talk to you about." It. I said, "Well, you can't. You're with us 100 percent." So the, they're really putting pressure on me to do something with them. So I agree to have a meeting because we weren't doing much in e-commerce. So I work out a deal with these guys, Benchmark and the other guys in MVP that they would pay us $15 million a year for four years, and then uh, they would pay us a percentage of all of their revenues after that. And we worked it out so Jordan and CBS could get involved with these guys, and they put me on the board of MVP.com. And we had a, um, 
a conference. I was uh, due to go on uh, CNBC that day, and our stock had closed at its all-time high, like $60 a day before. And on CNBC, they're promoting this MVP.com and the, and the deal with Sportsline, and I'm going to come on, on CNBC. So between the 10-minute drive from Sportsline's office to get over to MVP, I mean over to the studio, our stock had gone from 60 to 80. You know, just to talk about it, they closed at the end of the day, closed at 60 again, went up and down. But these guys spent so much money at MVP.com to try to make this work, and everything was on a roll. They're getting ready for a big IPO to raise hundreds of millions of dollars in, in, 19, in 2000. And in April is when everything started going downhill for for Internet stocks. There were four other companies in the sports area that were primed to go public to be competitors with us. MVP was going to go and these other guys. All of the IPOs got pulled. So by the end of the year, MVP.com was bankrupt, and all these other four sports companies were bankrupt. We were in good shape because we had plenty of cash. I mean, our stock was way down. If we would have had to raise more money at that point, we'd have been in trouble, but we didn't have to do. I'm I'm curious um, when when the bus does come a site like yours you know there obviously maybe the the amount of advertisers you have declines or whatever but would you have ever seen your your traffic numbers go down I mean there's other people that I've spoke to this that have always pointed out yeah the bust happened stock prices went down but the users never really went away no we uh, we continued to build uh, the viewership. No doubt about it. I mean, we kept we continued to uh, to build audience, and fantasy was growing. So from that standpoint, and we had plenty of cash, so we were never in any danger of anything. So um, you successfully survived the the dot com uh, bust, um, but I, I guess all along CBS is your your biggest partner, and and also maybe your bi- biggest customer in a way, right? Right. So does that make it inevitable that at some point CBS is going to want to come along and say, "Listen, let's let's take this all in house." Uh, yeah, that's uh, and and that's what happened. I mean, they made us an offer in two thousand one, and the board turned it down, and then they made an, then they made another offer. And I, you know what? I was getting um, a little tired of the whole whole deal because. You know, Sarbanes Oxley had come in. I mean, it was really a hassle to be a, a public company, and the stock was down. And it was just one of those things that, at that point, the board decided, you know what, we we should uh, just do this deal with CBS, and uh, we did it. Uh, closed it in December of 2004, and uh, you know, it's a very successful part of CBS today. Um, Absolutely, still friends with those guys, Sean McManus and the other guys at CBS. So uh, it worked out for everybody. I um, I believe you went on to found another company that was sort of in the fantasy sports applications area. Is that correct? Well, in 2008, I was approached by some guys to start a company, and we called it Open Sports. And it was going to be, uh, you know, uh, we had some ideas for fantasy that hadn't been done before. And, you know, I raised some pretty significant uh, capital to get it started. I raised about $10 million uh, to start it. And what happened, It's I had sort of on the same track as Sportsline was going to go. I would depend on raising more, more capital down the road. But 
in 2008, we had a financial meltdown out there. It was very difficult to raise any capital. The venture capitalists just weren't investing in 2000, late 2008, 2009. So we were forced to try to live on the money we had already raised, and it was uh, it was very difficult. And you know that one didn't make it. I mean, we we had some uh, very interesting products, but we could never get capitalized properly for it. Um, we'll, we'll finish up by talking about what you're up to today, but um, before we do that, if I could just ask you sort of general uh, big questions about, um, you know, one of the things that they always say that keeps TV uh, or has kept TV immune to being disrupted by the Internet was the fact that only on TV could you have live sports. But then at the same time, it seems so obvious to us now that like the things that you pioneered, like being able to you know see live sports scores, even down to the pitch by pitch for a baseball game and stuff, that that um, the internet has sort of made sports so much more intimate and so much more interactive that I almost wonder if like um, like that is the future. Do you know what I mean? Like bringing sports into this more interactive arena is maybe the way it's going to go, even if you're still watching the game, you know, live on a, on a, on a TV channel. Well, the networks aren't, aren't sitting still themselves on this. They, uh, you know, they're all going to uh, streaming services now. You can go to the OTT networks if you have Apple TV and you'll find CBS there and NBC and some of the others. And mostly what they're doing are just putting clips up. But when you look at HBO, HBO is actually streaming all of their shows on there. You know, so it's a matter of time, I think, before the networks start streaming uh, the live sports events. They're the only ones that are going to probably be doing the major events because the rights fees are so high, and they have the ability and the and the infrastructure in place to sell the advertising for it. It'd be hard for anybody else to do it, but I think you're going to find that that all of the networks are going to be uh, providing a lot of interactive features. They may contract out for a lot of that stuff, but I think that you're going to see a lot of the uh, – you're already seeing it in golf. You, there are a number of golf tournaments that you could go on cbssports.com and you can uh, look at certain holes live on the Internet. But I think before long they're going to start streaming everything through the Internet on these OTT services. And when they do that, then they'll be able to combine interactivity with it, a lot of different things. You'll be able to look at whatever camera angles you want and uh, and get a lot of other overlays on statistics and contests you can play. I think there, that sports is going to be a very interesting area over the next uh, few years. Is it, is it an inevitability that one day there will just be an NFL app or an NFL channel, like, isn't it an inevitability that these sports can get rid of the middlemen at some point and just do their own thing? Well, that's a tough, tough thing because the the, uh, NFL plays the networks off against each other on these rights fees, and they get a tremendous amount of money from the television networks for, uh, for the coverages. And for them, for the NFL... To say, oh well, networks, we we won't take your billions of dollars anymore. We'll just do this ourselves. They put themselves in the position where they would have to generate the revenue from advertising, and it's a you know that would be a daunting task for them, especially when there's you know <laughs> when they're not set up for it. So I I don't see that happening. I mean I I think the NFL experimented over the last few years with the NFL Network putting some games on TV. 
and I don't think it was ever that big a hit for them. Mm-hmm. The uh, the guys like CBS, CBS at Fox at NBC, you know, as long as long as uh, they're willing to pay these rights fees and take the risk of going out and selling the advertising, I think the NFL is going to be happy to leave it that way. So um, to wrap up, uh, tell us a little bit about um, what you're involved with these days. Well, I'm doing a few things that are pretty interesting, and uh, they in, they involve uh, some streaming uh, type of products uh, that haven't been done before. I'm kind of trying to stay close to the uh, to the sports area as much as I can. I'm looking at areas that I wouldn't call traditional sports. I think there are some areas that have a lot of room for growth, and uh, one of those areas that has really fascinated me is the uh, is the dynamics of this esports industry. Mm. You know, esports yeah. where they play the video games, one team against another team. Right. And they're starting to become professional teams in this. They've developed a wide user base. And just in last week in Madison Square Garden, 11,000 people were in right. there to watch a championship of these esports games. And and some of these uh, these players are making millions of dollars. And it's a kind of a sports event but you don't have to be 6'5 or run the 40 in four seconds. I mean, these are these are things that, that people, normal people can become expert at. So, uh, you know, so I'm kind of fascinated by that area, and I think that there's some some good potential programming that can be built around that sort of thing. Um, so <clears throat> I and have the to... other area, the other area I'm very interested in <laughs> is this daily fantasy. Hmm. Because you've got two companies out there, DraftKings and FanDuel, that are both valued at over a billion dollars so far. You know, and they're in their infancy of taking bets every day on these fantasy things. And it's been uh, judged to be legal, and the leagues are all involved with it. And uh, I think that there's a lot of growth in that area. I don't think that there's room now at this point for new entrants with uh, with the strength of the of DraftKings and FanDuel, but I think there is a lot of potential interactive programming around some of that type of fantasy. So like plugging in or providing tools for, for the players? Some of the there's tools for the players or a number of other things. What what the the real danger for these companies is that you know, to play fantasy on a daily basis in baseball, for example, you have to really devote some time to it because trying to pick a team against a salary cap is very difficult. And the people who are, are the real experts at doing it and they have algorithms that have been developed to help them put teams in place are very hard to beat by just a novice. And the worry that FanDuel and DraftKings have is the same people are winning all the time and the same people are losing all the time. The losers are going to drop out eventually, and it's going to hurt their, their base. So one of the things that they want to do is create a more level playing field where anybody can have access to tools that will help them put better teams together. Very interesting stuff, yeah. Um well, uh, Mike Levy, thank you so much um, for coming on the show. I-, I said to you over email, I've been desperate to get you on because um, you're absolutely one of the pioneers of-, of-, of bringing sports onto the web. Well, thanks very much, Brian. I've enjoyed the interview and uh, uh, looking forward to, uh, to listening to it. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. 
And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening. <laughs>